Well, I don't know if you have watched Tidying Up with Marie Kondo yet. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, I, I got to admit, I've only seen the first episode. But, so it, it, it's based on, this Netflix series is based on a book that came out in 2012, bestseller. Uh, people kind of went crazy about it. And I was like, really? An organizational book? But it's fascinating to watch the series and to see kind of how all of this stuff plays out. It's much more than simply this is someone who's really good at organizing things and she walks in and she tells people how to organize their stuff. There's something about this person when she comes in. In fact, one of the things that was interesting, I couldn't find the clip where, where they had this. I wanted to use it so badly. But in the introduction to the first episode, when they're talking about, you're, you're hearing the voiceovers from everybody uh, who have, who's been part of the first season, and they're talking about the impact of this. And one of the things that they keep coming back to is not so much the method that Maria Kondo uses, but her. They talk about her presence and how it's not simply what she does, but it's who she is. And how when she enters into the home, it's as though, you know, kind of her theme that, that you see here and you probably heard is this idea of if it sparks joy, keep it. If it doesn't, let it go. But when people describe her as a person, that's how they describe her, that she, is, she's, she brings joy with her, that there's something about who she is when she enters the house, that she, her presence brings joy. And as you watch this unfold, people, they're doing more than just organizing their stuff. They're beginning to assess their lives. They're, they're looking at what it is that causes them to hold on to these things and, and where it is they actually may find joy, and they start to ask tough questions about the decisions they've made leading up to this point. It's almost like they're in therapy, and they're just organizing their home. It's fascinating. Um, so, so we are continuing a series we just started last week that we're calling A New Way to Be Human. And in this series, we're looking at uh, what is traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapters 5 through 7. And it's just the longest kind of continuous teaching that we get from Jesus in the Gospels. And in this text, in this sermon that Jesus gives us, he's laying out not, not a list of rules that we need to adhere to, but a new way of being human, a new way of living in the world with God and with others. And so today we're going to pick up in, in what's, I mean, these things are all broken up kind of artificially, and so it kind of plays out as the next section. It's kind of the next idea, but it all builds on itself. And so it's not exactly something brand new, but for the sake of time, we're not going to, you know, go through two chapters of text together, so we kind of have to. So we're going to start in verse 13. If you have a Bible, you can turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. It's the first biography of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, Verse 13, if you don't, the scripture's up here on the screen. You can follow along. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Well, last week, we looked at the what's called the Beatitudes, or these lists of blessed people. And we talked about the fact that Jesus pronounces blessing, or says, um, because God has 
revealed himself in Jesus. Now, those who we often might think as kind of on the outside, the unlucky ones, they're now counted as blessed as well because they have access to God in Jesus. And now these same folks, remember, this is kind of one continuous thought. So these same folks who now have access to God's blessing are also part of those included when Jesus talks about the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So Jesus isn't simply coming to announce that, that God is a, you know, kind of creating this blessing factory where we can all just come and get all of our hopes and dreams fulfilled. But it's a place where we come to experience the blessing of God's presence and we leave to be the expressions of God's presence in the world. There's this flow that happens, this way in which, yes, everyone is welcomed in and then everyone is sent out for the sake of the world, not just for us. It's a both end. There's a flow that happens. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So these are, of course, metaphors. They're they're word pictures that Jesus is using to illustrate what it means to be people who both receive and offer God's blessing. And so he uses salt and light. So salt, there's a lot of different ways that you can use this metaphor of salt, right? Like salt preserves, salt's actually like this um, ancient symbol of peace. Um, It's a purifier, right? Like if you've been to or are familiar with the salt lounge, right? Or you have one of those like salt candles. I should have brought that. That's a better visual. Um, But it's this idea of purification. There's a lot of great metaphors for salt. But you can't get around. I mean, Jesus very explicitly says, if a salt loses its flavor, it's kind of worthless, right? And so he's specifically using the metaphor of salt to bring flavor. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people who is a salt first, taste second kind of person, you know? Now, my wife does not like this about me. Anyone who is a a skilled cook is not a fan of us salt first, taste second people, right? Because they have already adequately seasoned the meal, And prepared it for you. And then there are bozos like me who are just like, whatever it is, it's just going to be better with salt, right? But there's this way in which, I mean, think about it. What is like one of the best foods you've ever had? French fries, right? Just nod. Of course, it's French fries. French fries with salt are magical. It's like, who came up with this? It's amazing. Without salt, it's like shreds of cardboard that someone left on your plate to choke you, right? I mean, intentionally so. And so salt is like magic, where when it goes on something like a French fry, it transforms it into something edible. Not even edible, but beautiful. All right, you get it. I like French fries, right? Um, But as a flavoring agent, it draws out the best part of the food. And, And right, like, again, you don't you don't want to go overboard. If you put too much salt on things, which I can do, particularly when I'm the one who's in charge of making the meal, um, you can just kind of figure, like, well, the more salt, the better, and then you get to the end, and you're like, well, that wasn't right. Um, Too much salt's not good, but you need a little bit to pull out what's best about the food. And this is the metaphor that Jesus is using with the salt, right, That, that we're sent out bearing the image of our creator to draw out what is most beautiful and good and just and right in the world. That we are sent to be flavoring agents to help make the world what it ought to be. Again, 
if you're familiar with the, the creation stories in Genesis, one of the key overarching narratives of the biblical story is that we are people who were made in God's image to reflect God's likeness, that God creates the, the cosmos and says it is good. And then he sends human beings out to bear his image, to be his emissaries, his ambassadors, to live in his character in the world. And we lose sight of that. That kind of, the, our part in the narrative is that we forget that is who we are to be, or we choose to be someone else. And as such, the world ceases to be all that it can be. And so Jesus is inviting us back into the original plan, back into reclaiming our purpose to be those who draw the world into what it ought to be, who help bring out what is good and right and beautiful as we live in the way of Jesus in the world. You are the salt of the earth. And then he uses the metaphor of light. And this is, this is really fascinating. If you were with us in community group two weeks ago, we talked about this a little bit in community group, this idea that in the Old Testament sensibilities and in their way of, of understanding the world, the light was the law that God had given them. The law that we, we what you might think of when you think of the, the first five books of the Old Testament, a lot of the like thou shalt and thou shalt not, right? So the Ten Commandments and then a whole lot of other things. Um, the law that kind of frames out what it looked like for them to be people who lived in relationship with God and with each other in the world. They understood that as the light, the light that God had given them. Well then, as we move into the New Testament, we see that metaphor shift and focus on Jesus. That no longer is the light the law, but the light is Jesus who shows us what it looks like to live in relationship with God and others in the world. And, and Matthew kind of drills down on this. Before we get to chapter 5, which is where we're at now, in chapter 4, Matthew is kind of helping us make this shift, and he writes this in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus heard that John, this is John the Baptist, had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. So Matthew is quoting the Old Testament, this, this prophet Isaiah, and, and this this idea about the light shining in the darkness. And he shifts the metaphor from the law to Jesus. That Jesus is the one who is the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness is the place that is absent of the law, the, the place where the Gentiles are. So in this land where people are in darkness, the light has now come in Jesus. But then Jesus plays with the metaphor even further by saying, you are the light of the world. So it goes from law to Jesus to you. You are the light of the world. It's just like we go back to Genesis. From the beginning, God's plan was to express God's goodness, God's purpose for the world through those of us who would bear God's image. But we lost sight of that. And now Jesus is calling us back into it. You are the light of the world. Yes, Jesus is the light, but as those who are walking in the way of Jesus, we are 
the expression of Jesus' light and life and character in the world. God is once again revealing himself through us. And this is what it means uh, if, if you think back to what Jesus said, um, so that by your good deeds they'll praise your Father in heaven. As we do this, as we live in the way of Jesus, and we begin to express who he is and what he's like, then people come to understand what God is like through us. I mean, if you think about it, most people who you talk to who have really bad, like, really, like, they have no desire to have any experience of uh, some kind of religious community or faith. They've rejected faith. They've rejected the idea of God. By and large, the vast majority of those conversations will drill down to an experience they had with a person. And the way in which they experienced God negatively through a person or a group of people. And so as we learn to live out correctly what it is that God is like, not perfectly, obviously, but as we learn to live out what it is that God is like in the way of Jesus, we begin to help people rightly see God's character. They begin to rightly understand who God is and what God is like. And that is what it means to praise God. To see, you know, We often associate uh, praise with maybe singing or saying certain types of words, but really praise is just saying what's true about God. And so when we learn to live out the way of Jesus in the world, we actually invite people to say what's true about God and what God's like, which ultimately brings God praise. But, and I I understand that even as I say this, the temptation is to think that this is really about a specific kind of action that we're doing, right? They'll see your good deeds and they'll praise your Father in heaven. But it's really deeper than action. It's about our character. It's about who we're becoming. Because at the end of the day, what you do is simply a product of who you are. Scott McKnight, New Testament scholar, uh, says it this way. He's writing specifically about this text. And he says, This text encourages us to reimagine our role in the world as God's agents of redemption. Our task is to represent God, to mediate God's goodness, God's grace, God's holiness, and God's justice to this world as those who represent God. Salt and light, then, are about not just what we do, but who we are. This is about, this, this call to be salt and light is a call to becoming a different kind of people. That Jesus is in the business not of giving us new rules to follow, but in making us new kinds of people who live in a different way in the world by transforming us from the inside out. We, we see this later in Jesus' sermon in, in chapter 7, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, but um, Jesus says, A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. That our actions, the things that we do, the deeds, are simply a reflection of who we are. That in Jesus' call to be salt and light, it's not do good things. It's become the kind of people for whom doing good is normal. 
I mean, think about the illustration, right? Salt and light. Uh, Salt can't really, I mean, this is kind of the brilliance of the metaphor. Salt can't not be salty. It's just salty. Like, that's what salt is. Light can't not be luminous. Right? Is that the word? It's, that's just what light is by its very nature. And so if you and I are salt and light, it's not about act like salt, act like light. It's about becoming the kind of people for whom that's true. It's about character transformation, not behavior modification. Yeah, I thought about this this week when I was reading an article about a guy named Jack Easterby. Um, you may not have heard about Jack Easterby. I had not prior to this. Uh, but he is the character coach for the New England Patriots. Uh, now, I know it's a little too soon to talk about the Patriots for many of us. Uh, but it is fascinating, right? Like, character coach is kind of a thing that is, is increasingly common among NFL teams and college teams. And it's, it's really a word that's being used to define someone else or a, a role that's in many ways been around for a while but is now being called something slightly different, different and that's a chaplain. Right? He serves as a chaplain for the New England Patriots. But what's really fascinating, kind of like the Marie Kondo in um, Tidying Up, when people were, t- were asked about Easterby's role with the Patriots and, and what it is that he brings to the table, they talked about some of the things they did, of course. You know, they talked about um, times he would pray for them and, and times he'd lead Bible studies. But more often than not, they talked about what kind of a person he was. They talked about how who he was impacted the team at large. Josh McDaniels uh, said this, as he was asked to, to reflect on Easterby. He says, Easterby has impacted so many people on a daily basis. What he's able to do with our young people, our new people, our coaches, it's incredible. He's changed my life completely through faith and his presence and ability to connect with everybody, players, coaches of all ages, backgrounds, whatever it is. He's been able to do it because he cares about us as people. He's a unique guy that impacts our building in so many ways, it's hard to quantify. And there's that word again, that that presence. That it's not just what Easterby does in the locker room, but it's who he is that impacts this team. It's character that's key. And and you know this is true because you experience it in your day-to-day lives, even if you don't think about it in that way. Like, you could probably think about people right now who you maybe can't remember anything they've ever said to you that was really that powerful, but simply their presence in your life, if you were to be asked, who's had the biggest influence on you? You'd be like, well, that person's definitely top five. Well, what kinds of things have they said? I don't, I don't know, but just, they're, just they've been in my life. And them being in my life has influenced me greatly. In the same way, you can probably think of people on the other end of the spectrum. You can think of people who um, their presence in your life is actually incredibly stressful, challenging. I mean, they might even say nice things to you, try to be nice to you. But because they're self-centered or prideful or bitter, or whatever, their presence in your life has been actually destructive, 
Maybe it's a, a supervisor or a family member or a coworker or whatever. It doesn't matter what they say, who they are makes them difficult to be around. Character matters. Who we are as people impacts how we live in the world and what impact we have on others. And when Jesus invites us to follow him, his, the invitation is not start doing different things. It's become a different kind of person. One who increasingly reflects the character of Jesus, who learns to love what he loves, to live in a way that looks and sounds and is experienced like his presence was experienced, to be Jesus' emissaries in the world. But this happens because we are formed that way, not because we just start acting differently. So how do we... How do we become those kind of people? How do we become salt and light? How do we become this new kind of human? And I think the, the very first and the most difficult thing we have to realize is it doesn't happen quickly. This is not the kind of thing where it's like, well, you just make the decision and bam, it happens. It's magical. It's a process of cultivation that happens over time. I think it's one of the best descriptions of it was actually by Friedrich Nietzsche in his Beyond Good and Evil. He says this, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. A long obedience in the same direction. I love that phrase. Eugene Peterson later wrote a book, he's a pastor author, wrote a book kind of on that, with that title, about the idea of becoming people who follow Jesus. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It doesn't come quickly. And that's really hard for us because we want everything fast, right? We want it to be, we value efficiency and productivity, and we want to get through it as quickly as possible so we can move on to the next thing and conquer the next hill, But that's not how character development works. That's not how you become a different kind of person. If you think about it in terms of like running a marathon, right? Not that I've ever done so, uh, but I have a, a son who talks about it often. And if I were to wake up tomorrow morning and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run 26.2 miles today. You would never see me again. I would be dead. It's pretty simple. But if I really was serious about it, what I would do is I would come up with a strategy over the course of, I don't know, 16 to 20 weeks, three to five days a week, alternating, like starting slow and working up to it and alternating intensity and distance. And, and I would have a plan over the long run of how I would get to a point where I could be the kind of person who wakes up in the morning and says, today is the day I run 26 miles. But it would take time. But the thing is, once you become that kind of person, You don't wake up the day after you run 26 miles and suddenly lose all of that, right? You've become the kind of person who can actually run a marathon. You've become a different kind of person. But it takes a willingness to be in it for the long haul, a long obedience in the same direction. And there's a lot at stake here because 
really the most important things in life come not from ultimately what we do, but from who we are. It really matters the kind of people that we're becoming. And unfortunately, we often don't realize it until it's too late. We kind of, you know, most of us in our kind of largely comfortable, affluent culture, we tend to resonate with the Luke Bryant song. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with it. Uh, The I Believe, what is it, Most People Are Good? That one, right? It's a good song, catchy song. I'm just not sure it's true. I remember um, a couple of years ago. Well, let me, let me stop before I move into that. There's this verse in um, Scripture that we find in Jeremiah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, chapter 17, verse 9. And it's this. It's, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And this kind of strikes us, I think, as, like, we don't really buy this. Like, the human heart's maybe not nice sometimes, but wicked, really? But I remember a couple of years ago, um, before we moved to Berks County, I had a friend, newly married, who called me up and said, hey, Tim, can I come over? I need to talk. And this was late. It was like, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night. And this is back when 10 o'clock at night was like, I see about 5 p.m. in the evening now. I still had a good chunk of the day left. So he called me up. I was like, yeah, sure. And so he came over, and we went on a walk. And, uh, I mean, he and I walked a couple of miles that night just to kind of up and down. And uh, here he had been newly married, and he and his wife was recently, were, were recently having a fight that, that day. Earlier that day, they got in an argument. And he grew up in a home where he didn't have a lot of expressions of really positive conflict resolution. He saw a lot of screaming, a lot of throwing things, not a whole lot of help in terms of how to negotiate difficult conflict. And this fight couldn't resolve. He couldn't figure out how to resolve it. She couldn't figure out how to resolve it. And it came to a head at one point, and he was so frustrated that he just reflexively reached out and smacked her leg. And as we're walking and he's telling me this, he's just weeping. I mean, this is somebody from on the outside. You, you line up 50 people who know this guy, and they're like, one of the best guys I know. One of the best people I know. And he's like, I don't understand where that came from. But it happened. The problem with my friend is he figured out a lot of really great ways to be a nice person. But he had not given attention to the places in his heart where there was anger, where there was a need to be affirmed by people around him. And when that got exposed in a moment of conflict, evil in him that he did not even know was there came out. Thankfully, at that point, we were able to get him into a counselor, get some people around him and his wife to work with him through that, to help them process it and figure out how to move forward. But it wasn't that my friend was a horrible person. From the outside, people would be like to their kids, you want to be like him. But he hadn't done the work on his character to dig that kind of evil out. 
And we need to be honest about the fact that as much as it's, you know, particularly now, it's really popular right now to look at people and be like, yeah, those people are horrible people. But the first step for us is to stop and go, where, where does that exist in me? Where does the potential for that kind of evil reside in my heart? And to be really honest about that and to dig that out so that we can be a different kind of person. There's a lot writing on this. And it's important for us to do the hard work of a long obedience in the same direction. Jesus' call to follow him was always a call to follow, to, to go on a journey with him. It was never a call to simply memorize some ideas or some sets of belief. It was a call to become a different kind of person, people who could live as salt and light in the world. So, as we bring things to a close, and I would say I think um, we're going to spend some time in communion together, and, and given how things are going this morning with everything we have, I think we're probably not going to have time for Q&A. I would encourage you, if you have some questions, if you have something you want to interact, text that. There's a number on the back of the bulletin. Uh, text your questions or your comments, and what we'll try and do, we, we started this last week, and it seemed to get some good response. So if we get some questions, we will try to address um, as many as possible uh, via Facebook this week. If you don't follow us there, you can follow us there, and we'd love to try and deal with some of that um, this week. So we want to handle the questions, but we want to give some space for a couple of other things this morning. Um, But as we kind of bring things to a close, I just want to invite you to think about how you might be able to create space in your life to give attention to your character, to becoming the kind of person who reflects the character of Jesus in the world. Again, this is not quick fix stuff. This is stuff that we have to give attention to, that we need to slow our lives down and focus on. Some suggestions, and these are not the only ways you can do this, but some ideas to get your juices flowing as you think about some things you could do. What if you decided to set your alarm 15 minutes earlier each day. Just 15 minutes. Now, I know for some of us, that 15 minutes is very, very precious time. But what if you set your alarm 15 minutes earlier? You got up, you did whatever you got to do to wake up, grab a shower, get your coffee, whatever, but you got that 15-minute buffer. And you spend that 15 minutes taking maybe a a little bit of Jesus' teaching out of the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, just reading a couple passages And then silently and prayerfully asking God where there are places in your heart that need to be formed. Where there are places in your heart that are kind of left left alone because it's just too much work to go down there. That need to be shaped and formed into the way of Jesus. Fifteen minutes a morning. What might that be like? Or maybe you would choose to fast. You know, traditionally over the the course of the millennia as people have followed Jesus, one of the practices that has been really common for formation like this has been the practice of fasting. 
Now, we don't tend to do that unless it's related to losing weight so that we can look better um, or be healthier. But what about fasting as a way to, for like spiritual formation? It's tended to be this really practical way that we can eschew comfort, that we can kind of put aside something that we normally want or even need so that it creates in us a longing, a sense of need that drives us to our creator. So what if you took one day a week and considered fasting? Now, maybe it's food. Maybe you choose to take that day and you fast from food. And if you do that, I would encourage you to have some conversation with your doctor or somebody who, who knows about, you know, a dietitian or someone so you can make that decision wisely. But will you choose to set aside a day where you don't eat? So that when those hunger pains come, it reminds you that, that you need sustenance from your creator. That you need to be driven beyond yourself and what you can provide to yourself, to your creator who wants to form you. Or maybe you choose to, to fast from, I don't know, technology or television or whatever it is, but something that you kind of naturally gravitate towards that when you go to do that, when you go to pull your phone out of your pocket and just mindlessly scroll through social media, you're reminded, ah, there's something else that I, I want to bring to the center of my attention right now. Not my phone. It's whatever it is my creator wants to do in me. So maybe you want to consider fasting. Or finally... And again, this is not exhaustive, but m- maybe you want to think about how do you create space in your life for someone who is wiser than you to speak into your life? Could you set aside uh, one lunch a month or you know, a couple of hours where you could grab coffee with someone and identify someone who maybe is a generation older than you or if not older, maybe just someone who's a a peer or someone who you know or trust who has really good things to offer. That you could say, I'm going to carve out space in my calendar, even though that feels really costly, to be around someone who's wise and invite them to speak into my life. How might that shape you? There's a proverb, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, that says this, Walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get in trouble. And we say this to our teens a lot, right? Like surround yourself with good people. But we often, I think, just at least practically live as though that doesn't matter once you're out of high school or college. But the truth is, we, we always need wise people in our lives helping us become the kind of people we were created to be. Where is that space in your life for the wise sage to come alongside, and and what might it look like for you to carve that out? Just some thoughts, just some ideas. There may be some others, but character cultivation is something that we need to give attention to. Jesus invites us to become new kinds of people who live, who do good deeds, but not because we're given a list of deeds to do, but because we're becoming the kind of people for whom goodness flows, because our hearts are becoming increasingly reflective of the good nature of Jesus. My hope and prayer for us is that we would learn to do that together. 
as we kind of bring this time to a close, we're going to move into a time of communion. Um, communion is one of those practices that kind of call us to remember that we're part of the story of what God is doing in Jesus. That as we take a little bread and a little juice, that we remember the body and blood of Christ. That, that we see the, the true character of our creator in his self-giving love on the cross. And so I would invite you as we take it together, and there's, there's gluten-free options at each place as well. Um, but what we'll do is, after I pray, uh, the band's gonna, or Dave's going to come up and, and play a song for us. And we'll just stand together, and we'll move along the outside, come down, take the bread and the juice, and go back to your seat. And I would just encourage you, as you're doing that, to maybe wait until you get to your seat and sit for a few seconds. Take it a little slow. And allow God to speak to you about what might be a next step for you in terms of becoming someone who reflects the character of Jesus. What's, what's something you could begin to do to begin this long obedience in the same direction? So let's do that together. Um, if this is something that you're uncomfortable with, if you don't feel like you can engage in this for whatever reason, it's fine. We just encourage you to hang tight in your seat, enjoy the music, and we'll be moving on in just a moment. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion together. Well, Father, we, uh, we want to become the kind of people who don't just do good things, but who are becoming good. Um, who are allowing you, by your Spirit, to shape us, to change us, to make us people who are salt and light. Would you help us? Would you give us strength and courage to do the hard work of slowing down and looking inward and allowing you to shape us? Thank you for your love for us that we see in your self-giving death on the cross. Would you inspire us by your love? Fill us with your love so that we can live lives of love in the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name.